Deborah's at Mockingbird, and she is one of the presenters. And um, so I think we will lift her up in prayer because I know she'll appreciate that. Um, So let's start with prayer and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, Lord, you are the great shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And Lord, we just desire to know you better. And Lord, we ask that as we gather this morning to study your word, that you yourself, through your spirit, would teach us, instruct us, correct us, and reprove us. Train us in righteousness that we might be complete and ready for every good work. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Um, Deborah asked me to teach something from John 18 or 19 that really kind of kept us in um, kind of Lent but looking towards Easter. So I'm going to take a passage from John 18. And we're going to kind of just really perch on that this morning. Um, And y'all all all have handouts, and they're basically just scripture references. Um, So you're not just bouncing back and forth in scripture. Um, But could I get somebody to read, um, starting in the first verse of chapter 18, um, through the 11th verse? When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going on, going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Okay, thank you. All right, so this is right after the discourse, Jesus' farewell discourse. He's prayed over his disciples. And then it says, you know, when Jesus had spoken these words, this final prayer, he went forth with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. And that's maybe a 10-minute walk. Wouldn't you say, Mary Kay? I mean, we, you know, you could, if you had a good arm, you could throw a rock from the Temple Mount across the Kidron Valley. It's not very far. Um, So they walk across the Kidron Valley um, where there was a garden um, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So you can really tell that Jesus is going to a familiar place. 
He's not trying to elude Judas. So he's going to a place where he knows that Judas um, would expect him to be. So um, that's important. So Judas, procuring a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And I think it's interesting um, that, you know, this, through this whole, um, the whole Gospel of John, we've looked at this theme of light and darkness. And now it's darkness, and they're coming in with lanterns and torches. Um, and you've got the darkness of the night, the darkness of the world, and the darkness that Jesus is facing. So that, that motif is still going. Um, and then listen to this. And then it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And I think my translation's a little different from yours. But this knowing all that will happen to him, what does he know? He knows everything. He knows he's going to die. He knows really an amazing amount of specific details. And I'm going to just take you through some of the things he's already told his disciples. And you can follow along on your handout. Um, Mark 8.31 And he began to teach them. And them as the disciples. He's walking with his disciples. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Tim Keller says that this word must modifies the entire sentence. Um, And it means that everything in this list is a necessity. It's not that the Son of Man might suffer. It's the Son of Man must suffer. Um, It has to happen. Nothing is by chance. Nothing is by accident. All this that he he details must happen. And then Jesus tells his disciples a second time, and this is in Mark 9. He says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And it's going to be delivered. This is a certainty. Again, you hear that in this. And then listen to what he says, and this is the third time he predicts his death. And this is in Mark 10, 33. And listen to the details that he adds. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So what are some of the more specifics that you get in this third telling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Deborah's point was that the reason 
John does not go into so much detail was because it had already been it's detailed. already been detailed. Yeah. yeah, but I think it's helpful when it when John says knowing all these things to say, okay, wait, what does he know? And you know, you get the context um, a little bit better because that's sometimes that's a verse I can just flip right over and not think about. Okay, well, what does he know? So yeah, so he's got much more specifics. Um, that he will be mocked, spit upon, scourged, and killed. Um, he also says where? Jerusalem. And if you notice, it's now he's delivered to the chief priests, scribes. They will condemn him to death and then turn him over to the Gentiles. So it's both Jews and Gentiles that have a hand in his death. And he predicts that with the third time. Um, And all these details, none of it is by chance. You know, it is, hey, it is by his plan. He knows exactly how it's going to happen. He knows everything that's going to happen. And then in Mark 10:45, Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man, and that was kind of his favorite term for himself, Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I love this. This is why I came. Yeah, I came for this reason, to give my life as a ransom for many. And what's a ransom? Yeah, it's usually money that's paid to free someone from bondage. And that's what he's saying. I'm coming, I'm coming to give my life as a ransom for many. It's usually the payment demanded or paid for the release of a, of a, of a prisoner to take somebody out of bondage. So that's, Jesus knows it's going to be Jerusalem. He knows that it's going to be the chief priests and the scribes who are involved. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and spit on and scourged and killed. But after three days, he will rise. Um, John, if you go back in the Gospel of John, you can you kind of get threads of, and I'm not going to do an extensive, but you get threads of what Jesus knew was going to happen. In John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, Jesus lays, he says he's going to lay down his life for us, for his sheep. And then in John, this is further on in John 10, he says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again, rise after three days. No one takes it from me, not the Jews, not the Gentiles. No one takes it of me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. And I think it's important to remember that Jesus is laying down his life. No one is taking it from him. He was in complete control of the circumstances. He's not kind of the helpless victim of a cruel and unjust system, although that's at play. But his life, his life was not snatched from him. He gave himself up. Jesus' surrender to his captors 
was the will of the Father. This charge I have received from my Father. And then in John 13, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this is before the feast of Passover. And that tells us when. So Jesus knew Jerusalem, Passover, and the details of what would happen. Um, There's a verse in Matthew that says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And I think Deborah's really taught us this, but all of this, the fact that this takes place at Passover is not an accident. I mean, the hour that we've been talking about has always been fixed on Passover. Because what happened at Passover? Where were the first Passover? Where were they? Yeah, they were in Egypt. And God told them to take a lamb without spot or blemish and kill it, sacrifice it, and then do what with the blood? Yeah, put it over the lentils and the door and the door frame. And then once if that blood was there, then the angel of death would pass over. And whoever was under that blood, covered with that blood, would be saved. And that go ahead, Mary Kay. When the Jews celebrate Passover, do they what do they do? They Cook a lamb, roast a lamb, and, and no, they don't put. I don't think they put the blood on any seder I've been to has not done that. But that was done in the first one, and that was the blood that was that was over there, um, and it was God's deliverance from them of bondage. Um, and Saint Paul, and this is in First Corinthians, and I don't think I put it in your handout. It's First Corinthians five seven, tells us that Christ. Our Paschal Lamb, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. You know, um, and we, when we have our communion service, we talk about the the Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Um, and Jesus knew and knew all things. He knew the true significance of Passover, that it pointed to a deeper, more complete deliverance that was promised over and over in God's Word. Um, Passover, and really the whole sacrificial system, if you think about it, pointed forward to this hour. It was a way we would have, if there had not been a Passover, if there had not been the sacrificial system, we wouldn't really have a context within which to understand the cross. Because we wouldn't know what a sacrifice was. And we wouldn't know that that is what God required for the atonement of sins. So God has put all of this preparation in place. So when this moment in time came, we could recognize it. Does that make sense? So it happens in Jerusalem. It happens on Passover. And none of this was by accident. And Jesus knew that he was the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. 
And that's what St. John said, you know, John the Baptist said when he saw him, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Um, so Jesus, knowing um, all that would happen to him, he knew that his hour had come. He knew he would die in Jerusalem at the Passover, that he would be the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, that he would offer himself as a ransom, that he would lay down his life and take it up again, that he would be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, they would condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, who would mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And he knew that after three days he would rise again. And he knew all this must happen. So when he says, Jesus knowing all that would happen, um, there's a lot under that. Um, so questions on that before we move on. Yeah. Um, in the subsequent Passovers that they had to commemorate the first Passover, it was just more of a feast. Is that right? It wasn't... Um, it was a... It, it was a, almost like a memorial service okay. to where you would you would remember God's deliverance in the past so you would have hope for God's deliverance in the future. When they put the lamb's blood on the threshold, did all the Jews do that? Was it select or was it... Did everybody... I mean, I always wondered... Well, in Cecil B. DeMille's, <laughs> not everybody did it, but... Um, every, Moses told everybody to do it. And I don't know in Scripture if it's recorded that anybody didn't do it. But I don't know. I'd have to go back and really read it again. But they all knew to do it. And, yeah, Mary Kay. Jane, I think, you know, Jesus said, Father, take this cup. Yeah. And just the agony. Yeah. Yeah, just think yeah. of the agony that he was going through. Yeah. Just, I mean, he knew what he was willing. Yeah. I know. And that's where we're going. That's where we're really going to kind of sit on that point for, for most of this lesson. And but you know, I think that, that we, it, it seems to me that Jesus had a choice. I mean, that he could have made a decision to not do that in the whole free world. Yeah. I mean, well, if it, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, his human side. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, I think theologically it is, because if anyone had a a free will, and you know, we always kind of step away from that phrase, it would be Jesus, Just and he went. Yeah. 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 I mean, he. All along has been, you know, the temptations of, of, you know, in the wilderness were just that, to avoid the cross. And, and we're actually going to be talking a little bit about that in Gethsemane when, um, in the synoptic account, he asked that the cup be taken away. So we're, kind of, we're going to kind of go in that direction a bit. Jane, yeah. question. Sure. Oh, all right, the, the phrase, son of man. Yeah. I can understand son of God because yeah. he was God's son. Son of man, is that like son of mankind because he was... It's, it was actually Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. He called himself son of man 
often, and it actually comes from Daniel. And I think it's Daniel 7, if I can find Daniel, when he talks about the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. I just think that's an interesting... Yeah, it is his favorite... Yeah, I think it's I think it's in several places in the Old Testament. And let's see. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I because I've I've chased that before. Um Yeah, here it is. It's Daniel and it says Uh-huh. I saw in the night visions And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And listen to this, what was given. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when he is referring to himself as son of man, it's hearkening back to this, to this everlasting kingdom. Where is that in Daniel? It's Daniel 7, and it's in the 12th, 13th. My eyes are bad. Um, Either the 12th or the 13th. It's either either 13 or 14 or 14 or 15. Peggy, what is it? 13 and 14. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, Jesus, um, when he is being tried by the high priest, they say, tell us, are you the Christ? And Jesus finally says, yes, I'm the Christ. I, and, and you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. And it is a knock-your-socks-off encounter. And they say he's guilty of blasphemy because that was the charge that took him to the cross. Mm-hmm. That you were blaspheming, claiming to be God. When, in fact, he was accurately claiming to be God. So, okay. Yeah. Okay, so Jesus, that kind of back to John 18. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward to this band of people that Judas is leading and said to them, Whom do you seek? And I'll just say real quickly, note, Jesus is in control of the situation. Mm-hmm. He goes, he's the one who goes forward. He asks the question. Um, he directs the action. And, you know, many times in John's Gospel, we read that Jesus eluded arrest. You know, they picked up stones to stone him, and he kind of melted away. Um, and it was because it was, the hour had not come. But the hour has now come, and Jesus walks into it. And he's in control of the situation. And he asks, whom do you seek? And they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And literally, it's I am. I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am. They drew back and fell to the ground. Now, why do you think they drew back and fell to the ground? His majesty. His majesty. Well, that was the name of God. Yes. Yeah, that was the name of God. 
tied into his majesty, but yeah, he is claiming this is another one of those um, where he, this is I am. It's literally the verb, Hebrew verb to be. It would relate to Yahweh. And Jesus is applying, again, the divine name to himself. Um, and this, is, this amounts to something, and this is from um, a, a, one of the commentators that I was reading. He says, this amounts to something of a theophany, which is a visible manifestation of God, um, which causes even his enemies to recoil and prostrate themselves. And so just the... That clear declaration of who he is, I am, they all fall back. Um, and so Jesus has to ask them a second time, who are you, whom are you seeking? Um, and then he says it's a vivid reminder that even at this dark hour, Jesus holds the ultimate power over his enemies and the powers of darkness because he is the one who bears the divine name. And Trudy, I was thinking back to your question as I was reading that. And there's some place in Scripture, I'm not quite sure where it is, but Jesus says, if I wanted to, I could command an, angel of, I mean, an army of angels to come down and rescue me. So, yeah, I think you're right. He had, he, he had it was in his power to take this situation wherever he would take it. And he took it in obedience to what the Father's will was. Does, does that help? Okay. Um, so we asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. <coughs> Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And he's referring to his disciples. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. So even at this moment when, humanly speaking, you would think he would really be thinking about what was going to happen to him, his concern is for his disciples. And I just think that so, it so speaks to God's heart how his eye is always on us in ways that I don't think we can really comprehend. I think the way our eye is on our children gives us a glimpse, but not, I mean, just probably a very small um, similarity, but his eye is always on them, so he's worrying about, he's, he's taking care of his disciples. Um, then, Simon Peter, you got to love Simon, I'm back in John 18, having a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear, and somebody said the servant was probably trying to duck, and Peter just grazed his ear, I've always tried to figure out how you would lop off an ear, but that made more sense to me. Um, so, um, so Peter, took, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And I love just the details that they throw in. Um, but why do you think Peter drew a sword and attacked the high priest's servant? Yeah, he was protecting him. And he was also still thinking he knew the way this should end. That he had an expectation of how this should go and this is not going in the right way and so i got to do something. He still doesn't get it, do they? No, he doesn't. His, and this is what um, a theologian said. He says, Peter's brave, though misdirected act 
showed that he still failed to realize that Jesus' death was necessary. And it really, it's kind of the same repeat of, the, of what, how Peter acted when Jesus first told his disciples, and we looked at the verse in Mark 8, um, when he first told the disciples that he must suffer and be killed. Um, and just to kind of refresh your memory, this is when, when Jesus makes this first announcement of what's going to happen. They're in Caesarea Philippi. They're walking. It's the, Jesus and the disciples, they're walking, and Jesus says, who do, people, who do men say that I am? And the disciples give an answer. It's kind of like, well, we real, nobody really knows. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Some think, people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks at them and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers for the group. Does anybody remember what Peter says? Yeah, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And, you know, Peter gets it right. And, he doesn't it. <laughs> well, he doesn't fully understand it. And then that is when Jesus says immediately, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Peter says, you're the Christ, Jesus gives this really unexpected teaching. And what does Peter do? Does anybody remember? Peter rebukes Jesus. Yeah. He rebukes Jesus. We don't know what he said because Scripture just says he rebuked Jesus. But it was probably something like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. You know, I... this. This is, you know, here's my idea. This is how it's going to happen. And he rebukes Jesus. And, you know, it's funny. I can do the same thing. I mean, I can be so wedded. I don't want to make, I mean, we love Peter because you can kind of identify with them. But I don't want to make too much sport with them because I can do that. I can be so wedded to my expectations of how God should act in a certain situation. And when he doesn't, I rebuke him. I shake my fist or I just, you know. And it's funny, I never question my expectations. I'm very quick to, to question what God does. And I think Peter's doing the same thing. When, when, when Jesus says, this is what's going to happen, Jesus goes, oh, no, 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 that can't be. He rebukes Jesus. And then what does Jesus do in response? Yeah, he turns around and rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. And oh my gosh, I mean, those words would, yeah, really, whoops. Um, But the disciples were really unprepared for this clear revelation that the Christ, the Messiah, the the, the anointed one they had waited for for thousands of years would suffer and die. Um, you know, it just... And, you know, we, we hear that as Christians. We kind of know the story. And I don't think we really fully appreciate how jarring that revelation had to have been because they were so hopeful for a Messiah like 
Moses, who would lead them out of bondage, a Messiah like King David, who would, um, you know, conquer the land, reconquer the land, that this suffering servant wasn't what they expected. Um, But I think what's so neat, and and I take comfort in it, is that Jesus doesn't vaporize Peter. He doesn't say, oops, I need somebody, you know, you, you know, forget you, I'm going to wipe my hand, I'm going to go find another somebody to build my church on. Jesus rebukes Peter, and they move on. And Yeah, it is important to, he, he moves on. And then you see the same thing in the garden. Jesus corrects, reproves um, Peter again. Put your sword in your sheath. And then he asked Peter this great question. And this might be the last thing. I I tried to chase this rabbit, and I think it is, but I'm not 100% sure. This may be the last words that Jesus spoke to Peter before the crucifixion. He asked this great question, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so let's kind of unpack this a bit. What is the cup? Shall I not drink this cup? Pardon? Yeah, the crucifixion. But is there, think of the Old Testament context for the word cup. And I've got some verses down there for y'all. In Isaiah 51, it talks about the cup of his wrath. The cup of staggering. In Isaiah 50, further on in Isaiah 51, it talks about the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. Jeremiah talks about the cup of the wine of wrath. Ezekiel 23 talks about a cup of horror and desolation. Zechariah talks about a cup of staggering. So the cup is the crucifixion. It's this cup of God's wrath and judgment. And that is the cup that Jesus is talking about. And who gives the cup to Jesus? The soldiers on the cross give him vinegar. But when Jesus, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And, you know, it's a, the cup was given to him by his Father. Now, Mary Kay, you're right, but it was also prepared and handed to him by his foes. Um, And this is just, this is a good quote that I found, and I'm just going to read it to you. Um, And this is from uh, Bob Utley, who's kind of a a, a commentator for netbible.com. He says, the main problem is the theological issue of God's sovereignty and human free will. Did God or Jesus manipulate Judas? Is Judas responsible for his acts if Satan controlled him or God predestined and caused him to betray Jesus? He says, the Bible doesn't address these questions directly. God is in control of history. He knows future events, but mankind is responsible for choices and actions. God is fair not manipulative. 
And I remember Alan Ross saying the same thing when we, we had a class on predestination, which always gets everybody. And, you know, this side of heaven, I don't think we're going to fully understand it. So I just play the mystery card. And that's really kind of what Alan Ross said. He said, there's an intersection between God's sovereignty and our choices that we're never going to fully understand. And that somehow it was God's will, but there was all sorts of sin that was involved in it. And it's kind of like at the end, remember the story of Joseph in the Bible when his brothers betrayed him and sent him into, put him in the pit, sold him into slavery, and he ended up in Egypt, and they got, you know, he, and he actually ended up saving the family because he was in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And at the end, when Joseph's father Jacob dies, the brothers are again kind of scared that Joseph is now going to lay down the hammer on him. And Joseph says something to them. And this is in Genesis 50. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that God somehow is working through all these bad choices and all this sin to bring something good out of it. So I just wanted to make that quick, quick detour. Does anybody have any questions on that? That's kind of a hard... Okay, so back to, shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? It's a rhetorical question, expects a positive response. And I think the synoptic gospels give us some helpful context for this question, shall I not drink the cup? Um, And this is the synoptic gospels, you know, cover ground. John doesn't cover the same ground because it's already been covered. Um, And in the Synoptic Gospels, you hear a little bit different, you get more information on the prayer in Gethsemane that Jesus prays. In Mark 14, we hear Jesus praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then Luke, and this is in chapter 22, he, he records that as Jesus prayed, he sweated blood, which is a sign of extreme distress. And then Matthew, I gave you the full account of Matthew. And Matthew records that Jesus prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he prays a second time, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he prays that again. And I think Jesus' struggle in Gethsemane that Matthew and Mark and Luke record can be kind of puzzling, or at least it was to me for a long time. If Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him, why this emotion? Why this bloody sweat? Why this um, prayer of anguish? And this, you know, take this cup from me. And, Mary Kay, were you going to say something? I said nobody wants to suffer. He's human. Yeah, he's human. Um, But I also think I don't really have an adequate understanding of the horror of this cup that Jesus had to drink 
And I'll read you a quick quote from, from Charles um, Spurgeon. I think it's in your handout. He says, In Gethsemane all seems changed. His peace is gone. His calm is turned to tempest. Notice that all his life long you scarcely find him uttering an expression of grief. And yet here he says, not only by his sighs and by his bloody sweat, but in so many words, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And then Spurgeon says this, Gethsemane, it was the shadow of the coming tempest. It was a prelude of the dread desertion which he had to endure when he stood where we ought to have stood and paid to his father's justice the debt which was due from us. It was this which laid him low, to be treated as a sinner, to be smitten as a sinner, though in him was no sin. This it was which caused him the agony of which our texts speak. And I think that's, you know, to, to, to be made sin. I don't think we have any idea what that would have been like for someone who was totally without sin. Um, you know, the, you've got the verse from Second Corinthians. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is made to be sin so we might be made righteous. And then 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He emptied himself. So that, by, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus became poor, so we could become rich. And then Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. And becoming a curse, becoming sin, I don't think I have any inkling of the horror and the, and the agony of that. Everybody see the movie, um, The Passion? Passion yeah. yeah. Mel Gibson? Mm -hmm. I tried to get it to show a clip in here, and I couldn't find it. Well, remember when Christ became sin? Yeah. I mean, it was so dramatic, and then tears from God. Yeah. I and it just spiraled down. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it was incredible. Mm. And it, to me, it was so incredible. He, he did it well. The scene in Gethsemane, if you remember, Jesus is praying... And Passover is always a full moon. But this rack of clouds comes in and totally obliterates any of the lights in the sky. And it just, it's just so putting Jesus in darkness where he reaches out for God and, you know, God has turned his back. And that is something that having always been one with God that separation, that becoming a curse, taking on all our iniquities, I don't, I don't have a clue what, I mean, the physical suffering pales in comparison to that, to that spiritual suffering. And um, I want to go through Isaiah 53 because it 
is, and it's written 800 years before Christ, but oh my gosh, it is so spot on. Um, and um, I think it's very, very helpful to help us understand this. So we're just going to go through it, and I'm going to start in the fourth verse. Um, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. And notice the contrast between he and our. All his suffering was because of our rebellion and sin. It's his chastisement that brings us peace. It's his wounds that bring us healing. His suffering was vicarious. He suffered what we should have suffered. But his pain is redemptive because he brings us spiritual healing and peace. Um, and I heard this, and I thought, it was, I thought it was a good little way to think about it. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And we deserve chastisement, yet we get peace with God. We deserve the wounds, yet we are healed. And you really see God's grace shining through in everything Christ endured. It was all grace in what we get. The pain was his, and this is, I'm quoting a lot from Alan Ross in this. The pain was his in consequence of the sin that was ours. The pain brought spiritual healing and peace. And then he goes on in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the verse begins with all, and it ends in all. And this substitutionary suffering of the servant touches all who have sinned, which is all. Um, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And Alan Ross says the fourth stanza declares that he himself was sinless, yet silently submitted to all the injustice laid on him. He had no guilt of his own, and he had no doubts of God. He knew, and this is, I think was really important, I had to think about this, he knew that this was not punishment he was enduring, but it was a service he was performing, a service laid on him by God a service for man's redemption, a service sure of results that were glorious. If anything will accept a person to accept silently his suffering, it is this, that the knowledge that the suffering was a service to God. And I don't know if I'm there yet, but just to endure suffering with Christ as our model and see it as a service to God.
And I don't know, and that's, this, those are Alan Ross's words. I don't know if I'm there yet. I'd like to be. Um, I'm going to skip 8 and 9 just because of time and then go to verse 10. But if you look at 8 and 9, the details line up exactly with what happened to Jesus. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. And Alan Ross says here the suffering is efficacious. It was powerful to affect its, atten- its, ext- its intended results. Um, his suffering accomplished something. He pushed us out of danger. And I think I've used this illustration before. If I'm on the street with my children and I say, look how much I love you, and the car comes speeding down and I jump in front of the car and I'm killed, that accomplishes nothing. In fact, it's cruel. But if my child is in danger in the path of the car and I jump in the road to push my child out of the way and I'm killed in their place, that, that accomplishes an enormous amount. One, it saves the life of the child. But two, it shows them how much I loved and valued them. And so Jesus' death on the cross accomplishes something. And it shows us the enormity of the love that he has before us. There's a song my husband likes that talks about Jesus on the cross. And it says, why did they have to put nails in his hands when his love would have held him there? And, you know, you just, you, you, it's his love that has us there. Um, he says, God made this servant a sin or a guilt offering for many so that by their knowledge of him they might be justified. And in the upper room, think about Jesus um, alluding to this passage when he takes the cup of the new covenant. And he takes the cup and he says, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the what? Forgiveness of sins, remissions of sins. And sometimes it's, it's a sacrifice for you. So Jesus, I mean, it's just the, 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 the way this all lines up is just incredible. Um, you know, so we, the guilty sinners, have been declared righteous before God because of what Christ did. And then verses 11 and 12, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By, the, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, be, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes tra- intercession for the transgressors. And Alan Ross says, With this note, the passage comes full circle. God was satisfied pleased with the obedient suffering of the servant because he bore the sins of many. He made intercession for the sinners in his self-sacrificing love. And then God appointed him to honor and to glory. And he uses kind of military terminology saying, Isaiah declares that the Lord will divide the spoil. 
and that suffering will ultimately lead to exaltation. And you think of that verse from Ephesians that before him every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So Isaiah in this whole chapter 53 presents us with a picture of the ideal suffering servant. And he doesn't identify the servant in his prophecy. But we know that, but we who know the Lord Jesus Christ can see that it is he. The suffering of our Lord corresponds to the letter with the picture Isaiah draws. Nothing else can. The suffering of Jesus was vicarious in a way that no other has or ever could be. He took our sins on him and made full atonement for them. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. He himself knew no sin, but suffered, the just for the unjust, that we sinners might become righteous before God. And so, you know, just if you think about this task that was before Jesus, the enormity is staggering. I can't imagine taking on the horror of becoming sin, of becoming a curse, of making himself an offering for sin, of drinking this cup of God's wrath. But I think we get a glimpse of the horror and the enormity of the task when Jesus prays, take this cup from me. And I don't think it was because I don't, the physical, it's all the spiritual suffering that he would endure. Yet we see the submission of the Lamb. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he rises and goes forth to meet those who will arrest him. And he stays Peter's hand, stays his sword, and asks this question. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And one commentator said this. He said, Peter had a sword in his hand resisting God's will. But our Lord had a cup in his hand accepting God's will. And for me, that's a good image. Um, because I think it's so easy when life circumstances are hard and unfair to want to pick up a sword and take things into our own hands and, you know, kind of rail at God. And I don't know about you, but that verse in Romans where it says, Rejoice in our sufferings, has, uh, it, for the longest time I would get an image, remember the Stepford Wives? of the suffered wives just kind of rejoice in your sufferings. I mean, just kind of this, this fake cheerfulness that suffering, you know, that, that, that people could put on. And, and I found it really off-putting, and I didn't really understand it. Um, because when I suffer, I just want to grip my teeth and um, avoid the suffering. I don't want to rejoice. Um, but the cross, and really the whole of Scripture, shows us that God is somehow at work through suffering. He can bring life out of death. He can bring triumph out of disaster. And the cross is really proof positive that in everything God works for good with those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if you think out of the ultimate evil of the cross, God worked good. And I remember Barry McRae used to say that God was the great alchemist. You know, an alchemist changes straw into gold. And you think about it, God is the great alchemist. 
He turns water into wine. He makes the bitter water sweet. He turns weakness into strength. He turns suffering into beauty, sorrow into joy, hearts of stones into hearts of flesh. He turns the crucifixion into the resurrection, the worst moment in history into the best, Good Friday into Easter morning. Easter changes everything. And you know, as Christians, we can drink the cup that God gives us. Knowing the bitter will somehow become sweet. And we may see it in our lifetime and we may not. Um, But we know the ending of our story. We know that our story has an ending that is sweet and lovely and wonderful. I think I've told y'all before, I'm one of those that when I read a novel, I have to look at the last page to make sure it has a happy ending because otherwise, you know, is Elizabeth Bennett going to get together with Mr. Darcy? I mean, you know, I just, I want to know the ending. Um, And I can remember one time in a really dark time going to God and just saying, Lord, can you just show me the last page? I'll be fine. You know, I can do whatever. I just want to know what it is. And God, and it wasn't an audible voice, but it was a sure voice, said, Jane, you know the end of your story. You know that when the final chapter is over, you are going to be before me, robed in my righteousness, and accepted and loved and forgiven. And I will call you mine. And you know, if we know that, we can really get through anything. And I remember one of my favorite Paul's All sermons was Easter morning to the children. And he said, Easter has, at Easter means your life has a happy ending. And I've always remembered that. I mean, that's so simple to remember, but it's so true. And that knowing that God has done all of this for us, we can have that trust and confidence that he is going to work things for good. And we can have a real joy in our circumstances. And you see it in the disciples later, you know, in in the book of Acts and later on. You see, watching Cameron Cole and Lauren Cole going through what they're going through, that's not a rejoice in your sufferings, fakey kind of joy. It's a real joy that springs out of this sure and certain hope that we have as Christians. And I was just going to close real quick with something Jonathan Edwards used as a sermon outline. He says, Our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things will never be taken away from us. And the best things are yet to come. So let me close this in prayer because I've kind of taken this over. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord God, Lord, give us um, just that sure and certain confidence that our life has a happy ending, that you have overcome this world, and that we are safe in your hands. Lord, we thank you for your immeasurable sacrifice for us. Lord, let us never lose sight of it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.